When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ready to Record from Legal Studios, proudly sponsored by VFX Unleashed, powered by Amarillo College and SimCorp Productions. My name is Daniel the D3 Cohen, I'm your host, and I'm speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios here in my garage. I'm a 20-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you guys, I make music out of my own home studio. You know, some of today's biggest hit makers work from home studios, so I can help one of you accomplish your big dreams. Now, before we get into the episode, I want to talk about our sponsor, VFX Unleashed, powered by Amarillo College and SEMCORP Productions. VFX Unleashed is a complete accredited online VFX school where you can learn how to have a career in the visual effects industry in classes taught by industry professionals. There are programs in all major aspects of VFX production and software, including Photoshop, After Effects, Maya, Nuke, Cinema 4D, and many more. Online, fully remote classes start every eight weeks, and a full VFX studio within Amarillo College's Innovation Outpost will open next year will have a state-of-the-art soundstage and motion capture studio. You can check out all that VFX Unleashed has to offer and enroll today at vfxunleashed.com. Thank you to VFX Unleashed and SEMCOR for being our very first sponsor. We're proud to have you. Now, let's get into the show. Today on the show, we have co-founder of Inferno VFX and a teacher at VFX Unleashed, Mr. Dante Rinaldi. If you don't know the name Dante Rinaldi, you probably know the work that he's done with his company, Inferno Visual Effects. He's worked with Kevin Smith on a Jay and Silent Bob project, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, 47 Ronin, The Librarians, Disney's Epic, Ender's Game, and so many more. Now, you're probably wondering why I am talking to somebody in the visual effects world as a music producer. Well, on top of the fact that I encompass a lot more than just music in my studio, I am a really huge fan of the visual effects arts, and I think there's a lot of parallels, which Dante and I go into. So without further ado, here is part one of my conversation with Dante Rinaldi. Enjoy. Mr. Dante Rinaldi, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Dan. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Well, thanks for coming on. So, I have known you to be someone in a lot of different VFX uh, 
your company, Inferno VFX, does a lot of different films, um, mm -hmm. a lot of ones that people would know very, very well. Um, you've done work with Kevin Smith. Uh, for those who think they know that name, uh, Kevin Smith is Silent Bob. Uh, you, your company has done Fantastic Beasts and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Disney's Epic. You, you've done a lot of different things. Um, my wife and I, yeah, she's actually the co-owner of the company that we kind of branched out in, and, and we have a big love for visual effects. And, and just saying that term probably raises a couple of years with your listeners because they're probably thinking, wait a minute, I thought this was an audio podcast, <laughs> right? Well, uh, at, while this is an audio podcast, there there is merit to understanding the visual side of things because, you know, it, the the question I think the 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 big thing that we are told as musicians these days, you want to you want to be seen. Well, start a YouTube channel and learn how to make videos. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. everything everything revolves around the visual and at the end it, of the day it's a huge crossroads too right now i mean it's always yes. been a big gray area between right the visuals and and even like and we could talk about live music and going back in the day for bands and stuff but it's reaching fever pitch now as far as you know does someone actually need to pay any attention to what's going on around me or behind me or projected on top of me while I'm just trying to play my set or something like that. So it's really, it's really kind of becoming one road that we can talk about. Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff is creative process and, you know, a, a lot of industry related things that I know of these days, most of us, you know, uh, what one very good friend of mine uh who's been on the show is uh Lenise Bent. She's the first woman mm -hmm. to be platinum certified as an audio engineer. Yeah. Um and after a relatively long break from the audio industry, she came back but not in music. She came back as a foley artist and recording uh be being a voiceover engineer for film dubs and movie soundtrack and you know a, a lot of animation and you know it's it, it had nothing to do with the music industry at all it was all film sound yeah um and there are a lot of us you know that there are a lot of people that i can think of that i don't know terribly well but i plenty of people that i can think of that are shotgun recordists and you know engineers on field recordings and uh location shoots every i mean like, like we were saying before we hit record everything revolves around video including audio these days yeah it really is a lot of the same stuff and you know before you hit that big red button we had a great conversation <laughs> we were going we were what were we talking about uh you know apple products and people shooting things on their phone and and you know the world of microphones so uh, you know, it, it's, you, you really have to know, I'm a very visual person, but you know, you have to know this stuff because it's going to come up whether you're on set or whether you're in post-production or whatever the case may be. And just like what we were saying a little bit earlier is that, you know, a, a good friend of mine says half of what you see goes through your ears. And if your audio sucks, people are tuned out, you know, and it, it, they got what, five seconds and they're gone. Right. You know, right. And rightly so. Who wants to hear bad audio? 
if if you can't hear, there's there's really very little point, especially if it's a narrated piece. There, yeah, you know why 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 sit through poorly poorly recorded narration, even if even if the visual is beautiful. Yep, exactly, exactly. And you know, it's funny because you know we talk about we were talking a little bit about audio, and and even in our previous discussions, you know, uh, a few weeks ago we were talking about what. You know, a lot of your listeners are probably really heavily into, you know, the bands and the recording and that kind of thing. And, you know, without the visual, if you think about it, it, it a lot of it started not to go off on a, on a tangent, but the Beatles with their Shea Stadium concert, no one heard them. No one saw them. Right. And the audio and the video hadn't caught up to that concert experience yet. Well, you know, nowadays you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you know, think twice. Of course, that we're going to hear the band. But back in the 60s, you, you couldn't even hear them because they had their their own studio amps literally behind them on third base. Right. With a couple of microphones hooked up to the PA system thinking this is going to work and none of it worked. You know, it's kind of funny that, uh, you know, if just 10 years later with bands like Queen and Pink Floyd and stuff like that, that experience completely went away. And now it's like we have to, what they say, entertain while you're being entertaining, you know. Um, so it's kind of interesting that, you know, I'm just kind of talking the visual effects world, the special effects world, the live view um, is really so closely tied to music now that it's almost inseparable. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, well, since you brought up the Beatles, it's a really funny uh really funny thing that you mentioned because one of the things that I'd heard, especially with the uh, Beatles documentary now being out mm -hmm. um, is that they stopped touring because they could not hear themselves. Sure. Right. And I, as you said, you think about the seventies, um, the, the advent of good PA technology yeah. made it made it possible that in theory if they actually wanted to tour again or uh you know ha had the gumption to do a one-off show or something um they could have and something that I've I've always wanted to ask a Ringo Starr or a Paul McCartney mm -hmm. um would have been you know had Lennon not died it would in the early 80s with the advent of the technology both in the studio and in live audio settings would you have considered it yeah um and yeah and you know Paul went on they all went on to do a little bit of uh not say a little bit but a lot of live stuff but just not together right right but it's interesting that you know the advent of these humongous rigs you know stuff like you know the who you could hear for 20 miles away, the who, the who concerts. And a lot of that is a reaction to the fact that we lost the Beatles. You know, they said, screw it. We can't hear ourselves. So then the audience can't hear us. We'll just make these little movies, little mini movies like a strawberry fields and things like that. And let that go tour for us. Right. And then we don't have to go do it because it's a waste of our time and we'll just play in the studio. Right. right. Uh, but you, you know, can almost say, okay, so we lost the Beatles live, but we gained maybe the Sgt. Peppers and the White Album and the, you know, all that great studio experimentation because they weren't on the road 9, 10, 11 months out of the year, right? No, they, quite quite frankly, 
the fact that they could not hear themselves was probably a godsend for mm -hmm. the music of the Beatles. And honestly, I, for innovation. Yeah. Quite, quite frankly, I don't think the audio, the, the recording industry would look the way it does now had they not stopped touring. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, their, their experimentation, which was later, I think, reflected in bands like, you know, Queen with the massive overdubs and playing around with all kinds of soundscapes and microphone placements and all kinds of stuff. Um, they had that opportunity to just play as opposed to let's go sell these T-shirts and be on the on the road for 11 months out of the year. Right. right. Because that's what's required of us. Um, which, which is really kind of interesting, but, you know, going back to the visual effects part, that's, I think where it kind of was born, you know, if, if you just go a little bit further, a few years later, now you have say Pink Floyd and they're putting together maybe their big tour, the wall back in 79 and 80, and they're literally building the wall as they're playing. Right. right. I mean, so now you're talking special effects, visual effects, the, the wall explodes, you know, in 75 with Bohemian Rhapsody, they couldn't reproduce that sound live right and without a huge audio video show that you know they just ran off the stage when it was time for the the operatic section because they know they couldn't reproduce that it would sound ridiculous right with four guys on stage and they refused to do backing backing vocals so they ran off the stage and they said let's let the lights and the movie and the crowd take care of the rest and that kind of was the first kind of, in my opinion, like the first kind of marriage of live visual special effects and rock that now is being seen literally everywhere. I mean, U2 is just over the top, right? Um, even some of the stuff that you're seeing, like Billie Eilish with the interactive spider in her concerts and, and you know, Gold Dust Woman with Fleetwood Mac, you know, it knows where the singers are. The, the visual effects are, are like, encompassing you not even to mention the ar the vr stuff that's kind of happening now right you know that's coming forward um you know i, I think a lot of your listeners who say you know i i'm, I'm gonna be i'm gonna put on a show and it may not be as big as a u2 concert but i think a lot of people actually just you know you're at a smaller venue maybe a thousand seat studio you need something back there you need something around you more than just the typical sheet that was big back in the 60s right well, the spray painted name of the band. Yeah, I mean, <coughs> the 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 fascinating thing about a, a lot of the visual effects, the both of my parents worked for Bill Graham, and Bill mm -hmm. Graham. I, I don't know if you know the history of Bill Graham. Bill Graham Presents, but one of the subsidiary companies of Bill Graham Presents was a uh, design shop called FM Productions, and this is in the era of, like you said, when a lot of uh, bands really didn't do anything. The the thing that would happen often was a banner, uh, yeah. either screen screen printed or painted with the band's name and or logo. Yeah. Um, and then the lights will do the rest in the and, dark. Right. And and yep. and lighting is a visual effect. You know that's that's an incredibly important piece of 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 live music. Uh, even now with with the advent of video screens and a lot of visual effects and yeah. uh, other things of that nature. But one of the interesting things that I think we can attest to Bill Graham is the fact that Bill had a set design shop for not 
plays, not musicals, not anything like that. No, they were set design shop for live music. Yeah. And they and they built visual pieces and stage pieces for uh for the bands, touring bands that came in. Yeah. You know. And now look look what every band in the world does. They bring uh they bring forth uh giant set design, you know. Yeah. Some in some cases really pointless looking set, to, but it's still you know whether whether or not you think it's uh, uh, pointless or not, it's over the top. Yeah, it. But it, you know, it's you there. mentioned that that's a super good point because, like, someone says, someone might say, "I love U2's music. I don't care whether there's a twenty foot mirror ball." It, you know, and you know what what we're seeing now, and I'd love to get your take on this because as musicians and sound people. The most important thing to you all is how this experience sounds, right? And it's almost like just because we can do something, should we, you know, the old Jurassic Park kind of a feel, people are saying now, let's have these concerts, these live concerts, where people are looking at AR experiences on their phone while the show's going on. People are saying, put iPod you know, in your ear so you can hear different things you know, sonically around you while the concert's going on. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this kind of direction that, you know, the tech people want to go and the theater people want to go. And I just want to say, wait a minute, what do the musicians think of this nonsense where you're almost being tuned out because of a show on your phone it, during well, a show? Well, know? and I mean, there's, there's even times that go as far as say, you know, to hell with the PA Mm -hmm. We're going to stream the entire concert to an app on your phone, put your right. AirPods in, put your AirPods in your ears, tune into the app on your phone, and that's how you'll hear the concert. And if you're looking at the concert through your phone, because there's some AR nonsense going on, you know, some little bouncing character on stage that's not really there, it's in the CG world, do you even need to be there at all? And, and, and that's kind of sad if you have to ask that question, you know. So I'm saying, you know, the emerging tech of the live concerts are astounding, but kind of a double-edged sword. Is it going to be worse? Are we getting to the point where it's almost going to be like the Beatles saying, no one's looking at us. They're looking at their phones and they're listening to their Bose headphones. I'm out of here. This could be a movie behind me, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, it's it's kind of tricky. You know, I mean, what, look, just looking at some shots from from Muse, they hire a 3D company, a 3D visual effects company to put amazing visuals behind them. And at some point you're going to say, oh, oh, was Muse there? I was looking at the really cool flaming skeleton that was going on during my favorite song. You know, um, it, it seems like a double edged sword. It seems tricky. There. There, there's a lot of stuff like that. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I did a few years ago was I had to do some ad spots for this tour, but the tour was not of real people; mm -hmm. it was of dead people. Oh yeah! Re now you've opened that can of worms. We got to go there. <laughs> re re uh, reanimated by yes. uh, via yeah. photographs and video yeah. taken of them 40, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, before they died and put on a 3D thing backed by a live band. So here, here I was going... The dead hologram tour. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. no, exactly. 
And and uh, the the funniest thing was we didn't even have uh, for for one of for one of the two people they hadn't actually toured the hologram yet, so they only had um, example footage. Yeah. Um. So so what I this this was uh, Roy Orbison and Buddy Holly, the Rock and oh, Roll yeah. Dream Tour. Yes, um, of course. And it looks just like them. And now, it, and it looks just like them. Yeah. Now yeah. it's actually not old footage because they no. can now make them them do anything they want to do new content wise. It's actually right. digital sculpts that are photo real CG characters that are digitally sculpted and textured to look just like them. But I'm um, sure they they had to take some amount of snapshots to to get oh, every yeah, angle you're from, use as much from, as that reference right, you're, as you're, possible. It's not that they're using the video to do mm-hmm. the to do the the illusion of them right. there. Yeah, it's that they're using the footage to build the digital model. Yep, Roy Orbison and Whitney Houston is on tour, and Frank Zappa is on tour, and Tupac. Tupac uh, played with, on tour. Yeah, you know, and what this kind of reminds me of, and I'd love to get your take on it because you know, it's again the Jurassic Park question: We can, should we? You know, no one's asking should we, and the big thing is, is I I always remember a funny. It's this is really strange, but. If you ever saw John Travolta talk about famous uh, movie Saturday Night Fever back in 75, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a shot where he's walking down the street in Brooklyn and he's swinging the paint cans because he's, you know, he's young and he's, and he's got a lot of bravado and it's the 70s and it's disco and he's really hip and he's just it's a lot of swagger, right? But there was a pickup shot, a pickup shot where they found they needed a shot, but they didn't have John Travolta available. So they dressed someone like him. And they just had someone go up to a window and to take a look at some other boots inside of a window. And it's funny because John Travolta talking about this famous movie, which has amazing music in it. He says, I love this movie. I hate that shot because <laughs> my character would have never held his foot up like that. Something so so small, the minutia of such a decision like that, it bothers him so much. So you got to think. Would Buddy Holly or Tupac say, God, I would never say that on stage or I would never wear that or act like that, you know, and they don't have any recourse to come back now and say, uh, someone defend me because either my family's making a lot of money and I look like an idiot or whatever the case. I mean, is that an issue Do do ethically? What do musicians think of that? I mean, I'm from the Viz Effect side, so I'm thinking, OK, payday. Let me create this, right? Right. But ethically, what's the musician? What are you thinking, and and your fans thinking of that? Well, well, from from the perspective of me having, you know, been, I'm I'm considering changing my major because this whole podcast thing is changing, and and mm-hmm. you know, there's there's a lot of things in in moving moving forward in in this side in this industry that that have. Uh, pulled me away from my studies as a CS major, so I'm going to be mm-hmm. changing my way. But as a for now CS major, looking at all these Viz Effects people, and I'm I'm going, man, you guys must uh, look at these hologram guys like like these guys who who buy five hundred thousand dollars a gear and don't know how to use it from <laughs> from Vintage King Audio. You're, you're probably yeah. you're probably like the VKA guys going, ugh, I pity this fool. But give me the money. Right. Sure, we'll sure. do that. 
Sure. Um, I mean, you're, you're, it's never going to stop because the visual effects studio has ethical questions about this. Right. That's not going to happen. Um, right. I, I think, I, I think in, in some cases there, there may, there may be for, for some families, for some estates, whatever, uh, whoever runs them, they, if, if it's a family thing, there may be a sense of closure, you know, since people like Tupac and, and, uh, Buddy Holly and things like that, they, they died very suddenly. They died mm -hmm. tragically. Um, you know, it, it does make sense that if the family approved it, it's, it's some kind of closure thing for them. And they, the, their, their, uh, spouse, child, nibbling cousin, whatever, uh, gets to live on vicariously through the music they had created. Hey, sure. Um, but if, if it's for a, a, a profit gain sure, and they're, they're, they're abusing, they're abusing, uh, their long dead loved one as a cash cow, right. then, then that's when the ethical. Yeah. Like if you think about it, there seems to be a new Jimi Hendrix greatest hits, you know, album coming out every six months because in, in, in all these bands that are kind of. There's no more content coming. Yet they're always kind of scraping the old masters to find little outtakes and make new box sets. And you got to think that the artist never intended a lot of that stuff to, to actually have public consumption, right? They never wanted people to hear this thing. And yet it's out of their hands. And this is kind of like an extension of that. And, and you know, to push it even further... What if somebody said, you know, I'm, the Stones are going on tour, but I don't want to see the old Rolling Stones. I want to see the Rolling Stones from 1965. So I'll wait for that concert to come out. You know, why wait till they're dead? You know, why? It's it's almost just turning into an event where 50,000 people go watch television, right? Um, and is it kind of degrading the live music experience? Because, you know, obviously it's not them. They're not playing that music. It's all pre-recorded. It's not even, you know, visually them. At what point does it just turn into a movie? You know, that you just happen to be sharing, you know, you didn't even get a movie theater seat at this point. You were kind of a sucker to pay $200 a ticket to see Buddy Holly, you know, or whatever it is. And you could have seen that on your phone, you know, or it's it seems a little like, uh, damaging the sanctity of a live show, right? I mean, a live show, I don't know. I, I feel like you want to go to a live show because you don't want to hear the album. You want to hear their take on it. You know, what are they doing now? Are they going to play that song acoustically? Are they going to, you know, give it a different kind of feel or a different tone or, you know, and that's not available, you know, for these poor dead artists, right? Mm -mm. Well, and, and the other thing that I think can kind of, since we're, since we're on this, topic of conversation the uh, realistically this stuff didn't even start with the holograms or or the augmented reality stuff nothing none of this realistically to my head anyway started mm -hmm. with ar vr holograms any any of the visual stuff it started with the djs who would not actually do live mixes they would bring a laptop mm -hmm. plug in an audio interface pull up uh their finished mastered file uh have all the crossfades and transitions and that's their set they hit play 
they dance and around. they and do they mimic the motions are they like putting on a visual show like they're actually doing it live and if so isn't that pretty deceitful exactly Mm -hmm. And there are a number of DJs who actually do the music and who mix the sets and yeah. who do it the way they should. But there yeah. is a lot of people um, who will just fake it. But, you know, there's a lot of purists out there that would agree with what we're saying. Right. But then there's probably the other half of people that say, I just want to hear great music. I don't care if it was made two weeks ago and polished. What's the difference to me? And and do you see, and I could almost see that point, but I don't understand why you'd want to go somewhere to look at somebody and, and pretend that they're giving you that experience immediately, you know, uh, as opposed to, hey, this sounds just like what I played in the car coming here. You know, is it is it just an argument for purists versus people that are just nonchalant about it? Well, there's also the argument of there's merit to listening in a crowd. Mm -hmm. there, there is a crowd energy of a quote unquote live concert or live appearance that that would not uh, otherwise be felt if you were on your own. Now, that's um, interesting. You say that. And, so and if you're a big Buddy Holly fan, you just want to go with Buddy Holly fans to be around them. And and the other thing is there is merit to uh, there is merit to hearing that that music on a big system like, mm -hmm. you know, the, the tour that I was talking about, it was not a big tour. Right. It you know, it 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 crossed a few state lines, but, you know, it didn't really do, a it, you know, like we the the I, I did the West Coast leg of the tour as far as the as far as the advertisements and uh, one of the places that it, it was put was the palace of fine arts, which yeah. is a, like we were talking about. It's probably thousand, 1500, 2000, something like that. It's, it's relatively small in yeah. the grand scheme of big things um, for, for a nightclub size. It is a big club, but small venue. Um, and you know, the, 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 the thing about this tour also was that it wasn't just um, it was not just the canned music? Um, yeah. Oh these, no, there's live backup. There's there's like live that. backup. So so and the in, lights and the crowd and yeah. But you know, you make a really good point though. Is that you said the live experience? You know, where people could go home and and and, and listen to something, but you know, you could watch Casablanca on your phone or on TV. But for some reason, they say, you know what, we're going to put this movie back in the theater and that experience the big sound you know the the booming sound to watch jurassic park again in a humongous you know 1500 watt theater or whatever the case may be brings something else to it right so you're saying that a lot of these people it's not just that there's a screen with whitney houston up there but it's i'm around a thousand people and it's like i remember going to see a whitney houston concert or whatever the case may be right well and the other thing is, like I've, I I was quite literally born into the music industry and and grew up in amphitheaters and other other uh, music venues. My my father booked clubs when I was a kid, um, and something something that I have heard a number of times, especially mm -hmm. because a, a a lot of the things, uh, 
that we do at the venues I grew up at is classic rock. Something that I've heard certainly more than once. I don't know how many times, enough times for it to be memorable. Yeah. Uh, is I met my wife, I met my husband uh, 40 years ago at this yeah. insert band here concert sure. at insert this famed venue here. During uh, Stairway to Heaven at the Rainbow Theater, you know, that kind of a thing, right? Right. It, or Woodstock like, or whatever. Like, I met my wife at an REO Speedwagon show in 1974 <laughs> while they were playing the top hit of the time. Yeah, we had the same lighter and that kind of a thing, yeah. Yeah, she she bumped into me and uh, she spilled my beer on her tits and the rest was yeah. history. So it's uh, a communal thing. It's a it is. It's it's yeah. a communal thing in some cases it's a tribal thing, a very primal experience. You know, it 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 does get there. So do you think that communal spirit and that communal desire to share the music you love with people who also love it does that kind of supersede the kind of creepiness of a dead person up there pretending to sing to you? Because, I mean, um, there's still the spooky creepiness of it all, right? <laughs> Funny that you mentioned, because the the way you kind of you kind of just minimalize the uh, <laughs> the the oh, dear Lord, this is a dead guy talking at me today. <laughs> you just put that in a little box and you put yeah, that in the yeah. corner of your head that you don't really look at. Yeah. And then, and then a year later, you dust it off. Go, oh, I watched a dead guy on stage. That's but it is kind of a suspension of disbelief. You have to put yourself into it because you know it's that's not that's not really Tupac, right? Yeah, right. obviously everybody knows it's not Tupac, but you pretend it is because you loved Tupac so much, right? So you you are kind of putting yourself in a fantasy world a little bit, saying pretend Tupac is still alive, and he's here with you know. Uh, Biggie or whoever, and, and to rock our world or to do whatever the case may be, right? Um, it, it's 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 a little bit strange. It's a little bit off-putting, I think, to say this is a live show and, and this person is talking to someone, like talking to the backup singers and say, shall we do another one, you know, or, or that kind of a thing. Um, I really, I, as a visual effects artist, I have no problem at all with that because it's just another show. My issue with it would be for defending the musician to, to say, again, that's not the way I would hold my boot up to that window or, you know, or that's not the way I would introduce an encore if I was, you know, anybody. And I think every musician right now probably should put a little writer or something in their will to say, please don't send me on tour, you know, after I'm gone. Or, or if you do make sure I say this or make sure I'm cool or, you know, cause it's kind of a slippery slope, right? It very much so is. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, I mean, the technology is still relatively young these days. I mean, I get that it's, you know, Tupac was at Coachella in 2012 and that's 10 years ago now. Yeah. Um, but even so it's still young enough and still unused enough at this moment where it doesn't seem to be much of an issue yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the possibilities on the other hand are 
mystifying. And the other thing is, you know, with the advent of there's of celebrities, there's enough visual content and enough uh, recorded audio of them speaking that every one of their syllables, every one of their consonant sounds and vowel sounds and everything are available. Yes, but that's a good point you just made. It's available as, quote-unquote, ammunition to use, but then you're going to need either a human or some kind of AI device that's going to say, and I'm going to put it together in this way right. and say something that that person maybe never wanted to say, you know. But in um, theory, it one, it, I mean, you know, it, in English, it is not that good yet. Actually, it's mm-hmm. funny because span, I've, I've listened to uh, AI, um, AI built uh, text to speech where you've recorded uh, lines into the software and it built and it rebuilds your voice for you right. based on your vocal inflection. Right. And it's not very good in English yet. Mm-hmm. It's it's decent, but it still sounds like a computer when you're in front of it, yeah. um, when you're listening to it on a good system. Over the phone, it would probably fool most people. Yeah. Um, Spanish is better. But think about it. In 20 years, Philip Seymour Hoffman could do an animated cop, but buddy cop movie. Sure. We uh, could get Heath Ledger back to do another Joker. Right. Couldn't we? Yeah. And I think it probably would be a huge hit just for the just for the novelty of saying we got him back. You know, who cares about the story? Christopher Nolan maybe is not even involved in it. And, you know, but check it out. It's Heath Ledger again, you know. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to I don't want to like stand back and, and stand on my ethical kind of stone and say, no, that's not right. I'm going to go and check out that movie. Right. Like anybody else. I'm I'm crazy not to. Right. Um, Sean you know, Connery so, could do another bond. Yeah. As a, as when he looked in Dr. No back in 62, you know, and I'm absolutely going to check it out. And people are going to look at it with a discerning eye. And if they forget that it's just, you know, you know, like the fake Keanu Reeves that just came out just a few weeks ago or days ago, uh, you know, selling the new Matrix game. Uh, it's it's perfect, you know. And so if that's the case, you know, who's to say it's bad? It's it's like. I like how that person looks in that role, and that's what I want to see. Right, or uh, something something that's been popular in my uh, in my generation is uh, Have you heard of the character Michaela? No, who's Michaela? Uh, she is a robot. Supposedly, we don't mm-hmm. actually as as far as mainstream culture is aware, we don't know who she is. And she's, but, but she's become some kind of a, uh, a, a, a it girl of sorts. Um, and is she real or is that the mystery? She's not real. She, she's. Cause I'm looking at her now on Instagram and I'm guessing this is an LA 19-year-old robot living in LA. Well, tell, tell tell us about Michaela here. What, this well, looks kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> so she's a character created by uh Trevor McFreddy's and Sarah Deco. 
Okay. Um, and it started off as that Instagram profile. Yeah. And it's um, you know, it's it's it 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 was a proof of concept turned into a massive success. Um to the point where now the character is insanely popular. I mean, if you're looking at her Instagram, she has over 3 million followers. Yeah. Now, she, is this, a, she's a, is this character. A, ro- a real robot that's interacting with these people and taking photos with them? Uh, or is this, a, is this a post-production trick where it's like Photoshopped in, so to speak? Post-production trick. Okay, so they're not, this robot doesn't really exist, no one's for sure, right? Or maybe they are for sure. But it, she just placed into these photos... She is entirely CG. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I don't, what I'm guessing because she has done, she has posed with a lot of, uh, different people. Um, like, you know, she was in a Calvin ad with Bella Hadid. Okay. So, so there has to be, my guess based on everything is there has to be some placeholder that they're replacing for all I know. She has a lot of fans, a lot of celebrity fans, Millie Bobby Brown. Oh and, yeah. And Ariana Grande. And it's, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, Kim Kardashian is following this CG robotish kind of thing. Justin Bieber, et cetera, et cetera, Miley Cyrus. Um, and so th- it's interesting because, you know, again, this kind of talks about the nebulous gray area of, you know who cares as long as it's entertaining, right? Um, and they're they're not, they're not like profiting off of fooling people, right? Um, it's not like hey, we tricked you. You know the president of the United States didn't say that kind of a thing, and you voted my way versus their way, or whatever the case may be. And 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 I think a lot of things things like these things start as entertainment purposes, and it's fun, but there's a dark side right around the corner to a lot of this stuff, isn't there? Well. There's there's a lot of hypotheticals that, that mm-hmm. we could go into. There's there's a lot of negative, there's a lot of positive. I mean, something something of note is, you know, this technology could be incredibly beneficial to a lot of people uh with disabilities, especially especially, you know, the, the vocal stuff is already becoming um useful to people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. I know there are a lot of people who have had to have uh tracheotomies and and uh, have their tongue removed because of cancers and things yeah. like that. And they've been able to keep their voice, right? Their actual yeah. voice. And that stuff's fantastic. You know, I, I say go as far as we can go with all that stuff. But it, it's the visual kind of like this robot and the Tupac. It seems like right now it, the focus is on let's, let's kind of fool and trick people with actors and musicians, right? With you guys. Right. You guys are kind of like the guinea pigs right now. Right. Um, and have you talked to people in your industry to say, have you seen this and, and it's awesome? Or have you seen this and it's a little disturbing or, or anything like that? I mean, what did you think of the show? You, what, you were part of the show for a couple of these 1950s tours, right? Buddy Holly and Roy Orbison. But were people enjoying it? Was it a good show? Did you know? Didn't didn't go. I did the ads. Oh, you didn't go. I, I did the ads for it. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, I did the advertising for it. Uh, you know, would and, you go and see your way, favorite band? Way. Would you go see your favorite band as as quote unquote holograms? Because they're not really holograms anyway. It's like a Pepper's Ghost kind of a thing. But would right. you? There's 
I Would don't you know. throw down five hundred dollars to see hologram Led Zeppelin? Hell no, 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 no. I, I would not, I would not spend that money. If, look, if it was, if it was something where it was inexpensive enough, mm-hmm. and it, you know, the why I would go would be out of intrigue, you mm-hmm. know, it, more than. Oh wow, this is really cool. I get to see my favorite band who has not actually toured since before I was alive. You know, I'm 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 20, right? I mm-hmm. I've not had a lot of life yet. And yet mm-hmm. my music tastes really up until recently didn't go past 1993. Okay. Uh so so from that sense you I I I suppose you are speaking to kind of the ideal person to ask that question. Well, would you go see Kurt Cobain in his heyday? If for... as as a gimmick, as somebody who works in video, who has done you know lyric videos, music videos, and mm-hmm. uh, ad spots and promotions and things like that, and as somebody who appreciates the music, if the ticket was inexpensive enough, I'd want to see how they did. But I would not actually go as a fan of Nirvana. Okay. I, I, I would, I would, I, m- my intrigue is based on technological curiosity. Precisely. So that's an interesting caveat that you're not going to go because you're going to rock out with everybody Nirvana and you're going to wear your flannel again and it's going to be like old times or whatever the case may be. You're going to go because you know that this is a, this is a little trick and you want to see how well they pull it off. And exactly. I think that's probably a lot of people would do that, but I'm guessing after about 10, 15 minutes, you may, you, your brain kind of says, it's a great trick. It looks great. And now for the next two and a half hours, you're just rocking out to the songs potentially, right? Or, you know, it was a cheap ticket. I've seen how well or how poorly they did. I'm walking And then out. you just walk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, at, at the yeah. point where, at the point, if, if you're, if, but let's just continue on with the Nirvana uh, yeah. example. You know, if you're doing Nirvana, I sincerely doubt that Dave Grohl is going to walk away from the Foo Fighters for five minutes to go do a hologram Nirvana tour. And Lord knows what Chris. Well, he might be a hologram too, right? Let's get him young with the long hair and the whole bit. Right. Right. It's either you have fake. Yeah. You you either have fake Kurt and, and the two of them back or the three of them, if we're including Pat Smear, which realistically I should. Or you have fake, uh, you have the fake four, you know. Right. Hell, you could, you since we were on the on a kick about the Beatles, you could do a fake Fab Four. Sure, they uh, could open for them, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and they could be playing Nirvana songs for all we know, right? Right. Make them do whatever you want them to do. Uh, and it, but you know, it's it's there. There is something of merit to the technological advancements and the intrigue based on the fact that somebody has been able to revive this music and maybe mm-hmm. revive interest in the music mm-hmm. with, with that, you know, like in the case of Buddy Holly's widow, I can understand some of it. You know, she, she was his wife. She's kind of the last person on earth that has a connection to him. She carried his child, albeit, she miscarried when she found out that he had died in a plane crash. Uh, but you know, I, I'd understand that from her, but there's like, 
uh, you know, Francis Cobain, Kurt's daughter, mm-hmm. has has her mother, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. and 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 it's not like Courtney Love needs to revive Kurt, so she would revive him for a gimmick for kicks. Well, for, she'd probably revive him for about twenty million dollars, right? Well, right, you know, it's like, but at that point, it's it's <laughs> the cash grab, right? Yeah. So, so, so the, the, the moral and the ethical keeps me from actually being interested in it completely. Yeah. Um, as somebody in the entertainment industry, cause you know, let's, let's face it. No matter if you're a basketball player, a baseball player, a visual effects designer, or an audio engineer, we're all realistically in the entertainment industry we're all here sure. to entertain people sure um you and know, yeah so, i mean this is an extension of that right so as a person in the entertainment industry who is in the audio world who is starting to break into the visual world mm-hmm. more seriously this is a this is intriguing to me mm-hmm. um as a musician and as a fan, it it almost feels foolish or or uneventful, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it it what it, I think one of the issues that maybe we haven't spoken to about it is is that yeah, the, so much focus is on the visual trickery of it, but the music itself, the sound, which you know is half of why you go to a concert you want to see the person and you want to hear the person if it's just another bootleg recording that wasn't released and maybe they cleaned it up or anything like but maybe the whole point of you know going to a concert is i I, you know ultimately to hear music if that takes a back burner because of the visual trick that they're putting on you know the front plate there that again, as I guess I'm, I'm in the purist camp. That to me kind of negates the purity of going to a concert, you know, because, you know, it's it's like, well, I've heard this bootleg is what they're using, you know, maybe or so, something like that, and and it almost takes a back seat to the visuals, whereas it seems a little bit out of line for me. It seems a little bit like, you know, you're 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 losing the message of of going to a concert, you know. I mean, what do you think of that? I mean, is if the music takes a backseat, the sound, the quality of the sound, all that, does that negate, you know, how a musician feels about that hologram tour? Well, depends on the musician, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, it it is a fascinating question. I don't know if I can completely answer it because there there's. There is so much to unpack with that. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, so there's, look, there's always going to be the divide of the purist versus the, the, the cash cow. Sure. There's, there's always going to be, uh, those who, uh, put up ethical questions there's always going to be people that go, well, I don't like this, but they've hired me and uh, 50 of my other best friends to be uh, an orchestra 
for for this dead guy tour so i'm yeah. going to take the money and so those are the people that will change camps depending on how many zeros are on that check <laughs> right well right you know it, yeah. and and it's not necessarily that they change camps it's the you know who who are they going to hire they're going to hire the starving musician they're not going to yeah. hire the because yeah. the, the the whole point is that they need the the dead guy to not be upstaged because that's the whole point of reviving sure. the dead guy Sure. You know? <laughs> right. So, so they're going to hire the starving musician to be, yeah. to be the backing band, and and the the person that's going to be there is going to go. Well, I don't completely like the fact that I'm, you know, playing in front of a dead guy. This feels incredibly strange, <laughs> but I need I need the check. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, that's true. It it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating. Yeah, I wonder if your listeners, if you could maybe do a poll, you know, and say, hey, what do you think of this? Where where do you draw the line? You know, you can have the Supremes because I don't care about the Supremes, but don't you dare touch, you know, Jimi Hendrix or, you know, whoever else, you know. But it certainly seems like a huge cash cow. I mean, because there's a lot of dead people that people want to see again, right? You can go all the way back. You can say, well, you know what? Screw it. Let's have Beethoven play piano for everybody for halftime of the Super Bowl. You know, and look, it looks just like Beethoven, you know, or or Leonard Skinner or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, it, it certainly is like it just opens up a humongous monetary opportunity for people who aren't going to ask questions to say, you know, would this would this musician actually say or do this? You know, you think about like uh, Freddie Mercury, you know, he always hated, hated. He, he always said, no, I will never want I'll ever have my music in a commercial. You know, the Queen's music is too important to be in a commercial. Now, you know, the GMC ad that just aired last night has literally Freddie in there. He probably is pissed off wherever he is right now. But again, he, we take that choice from them, don't we? And it's kind of like, like you said, it's a lot to unpack. It's ethical. But again, Jurassic Park, we can create a T-Rex. Should we create a T-Rex? <laughs> you know, Um it's it's kind of interesting to kind of talk about that. But I love hearing from the perspective of a musician because, you know, I talk to VFXers all day, you know, and of course we're like, hell yeah, how can we make this look more real? Does that look like Princess Leia? How can we make it look, whatever the case may be, right? But you're on the other side of the fence, you know, and, and your circle. And it's interesting to hear your take on that because I don't get a chance uh, you know, to hear from that perspective, which is great. Well, I'm to, sure to I'm sure a number of the producers and engineers out there are going to look at it and go, okay, great. How do we monetize off of this guy? Sure. Um, right. You know, I, I think, I think very much like you, because at the end of the day, they're going to have to remaster the audio. They're going to, there, there's mm -hmm. going to have to be some amount of audio restorationists yep. taking, you know, especially in the case of a Buddy Holly tour where everything was done. Oh, no to yeah. one track tape right right which the, is not conducive to a stadium or even a a, a thousand feet a thousand seats you know uh, venue right so there is a lot of that but again if if you know you can take these mono recordings right and then someone says let's remaster it let's clean it up let's put it in stereo sound Again, Buddy Holly doesn't have any say in that. So is there really any difference between just remastering something and just remastering him and putting him on the stage too? Is it just another form of remastering, but you're just remastering a visual now? You know, maybe, uh, maybe it's just n not as 
kind of bizarre as we think. It's just another form of high fidelity entertainment or something, right? Right. I, I mean, you know, hmm. there, there, <laughs> there's so there there's so many questions that that one could ask. Um, yeah. I mean, like Pet Sounds, The Beach Boys. The, I'm a purist. I'm going to listen to it in mono, right? Because that's how it was made. Or, or like some of the stuff like, or for example, we talk about the Beatles and he and Paul McCartney releases Let It Be Naked, right? Where it's like, this is how I wanted it to sound. And, you know, Phil Spector, get out of here. I didn't want you in the first place, whatever the case may be, uh, which I would never say. I love Phil Spector's wall of sound, you know, apart from what he was doing on his private time, that's something else. But, you know, that revisionist thing, it's it goes with movies, too. Did Han shoot first, or, you know, or should we take the guns away from the, the FBI chasing the kids in E.T.? That revisionism is basically kind of what we're doing. And a lot of people are going to say, don't you dare touch that because that's not original. And then other people are like, who cares? It's entertainment, right? Um, but I think I'm on the camp of don't touch that, so to speak, and which is probably stupid because I'm in the visual effects world. Where are you on the whole, you know, should we remaster? Should we change movies? Should we change, you know, all of that? Um, sensibilities, political sensibilities, even modern day sensibilities. Hmm. I will admit I do like touch ups. I mean, there, you know, there's 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 a give and a take, right? Because there's there's so much technological advancement but there's also merit to listening. But when you say touch-ups, touch-ups from the original artist who had a hand in that, or touch-ups from someone that just came in and said, I'll finish that book that you died during making, or I'll finish that record, or something like that. I mean, do you, do you kind of differentiate between a touch-up where the original person was not there to conduct that direction? And does that negate the, the original quality or the artistic interpretation of? No, I'm not. I don't want to throw these out at you, Dan. Like, what's your answer, Dan? <laughs> these are meant to be questions no, that are like, think about that kind of a thing. Well, right, right. and that's 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 what that the and that and therein lies the dead air is the yeah. Is the, and, and maybe you're chew on I that. I hope your listeners are are having a little dead air too to think, is that what I want? You know, well, do, do, do I want someone to do that to my work? God forbid, or that'd be great. Who knows? <clears throat> well, the the thing that I keep thinking about is I will probably always prefer a first pressing. Since you brought up Queen, we've been talking about Queen for a lot of this. Is that you, <laughs> yeah? I will probably always prefer a first pressing of a night at the opera, right? that whose master uh who, whose final mix came from the two inch yep and was bounced through the console to the half inch the original console the original equipment the half inch was taken to the mastering engineer mm -hmm. who put it through their rig At and Road. then cut it yeah. to the lacquer and the lacquer yeah. got sent off to be turned into the press for you know the 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 vinyl because it's a time capsule, released. and it's what Freddie heard and Brian May heard, 
and it's what they gave their blessing on. Right? But more to the point, as an audio professional, see, here's mm-hmm. here's the thing that Maybe they weren't happy with it. They, they want CD quality sound, but CD quality is oftentimes worse. Here, let, let me let, let's ex, let's explain this, and this is this is the divergence between vis effects and the auditory sound. Yeah, audio will almost always sound better analog, even almost. with the hum and the buzz and the analog and the. Signal to noise ratio aside, it yeah. will sound better and is actually in, in a lot of ways better for you. I agree with that completely because as soon as you go digital, you've resampled out a lot of information. Right. And I actually I actually had to do a uh, <laughs> it was funny when I was in when I was a freshman in high school, I had to do a project. I had to write an essay and then I had to do I had to do a presentation on this research essay and what I, what did I do the research essay on? Well, you know, they, they didn't care. They were like, write a research essay and we can critique you on how you did, uh, as far as quoting your research and actually compiling an essay. We don't care about the research, fuck the research. So what did I do? I, I did a research project on, uh, the advent of analog recording and analog media and why it, and, and how one would argue, uh, why it sounds better. And, the the immediate thing which when i put the presentation together i uh i had actually taken uh i, I had gotten renders of uh what a audio wave looked like at uh at a 44.1 kilohertz sample rate sure sampled down to a 44 right right from and, the original analog, which was not split up at all. And, you know, it's, it's boxes yeah. of, of a waveform. It's, it's stepped. Straight it, little connect the dots mm-hmm. when you zoom in. Absolutely. And sure, we can say, hey, 90, 96K, 192K sounds way better because more samples. More dots, right? But at the same time, you know, I... I Almost every audio engineer I have spoken to for this podcast and outside of this podcast uh, on personal time has said, sure, we've been hired to use 192, but we don't use it. We don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to us, it, it's not that we don't hear the difference. It's the difference is so minute that it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And it's going to get some down to 44 anyway. But more than just downsampling, when they remaster, aren't they also taking out some of that buzz and the floor and the hum and all that great stuff that may give color to perhaps like a 196, like a Vox AC30 or something that, you know, some sound engineer may say, why does the AC30 sound like that? Let's get rid of that hum when that was kind of part of it. And that's why Brian May chose that amp, right? Is that well, part of the process of stripping out a little bit of the color of the original art? Well, Brian May chose that amp because he was a giant Roy Gallagher fan. But <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> but the no, because they were using noise gates anyway. Mm-hmm. Then just now the noise gates are a lot better because yeah. so they would probably want that anyway. You're thinking? Well, I I think with the look, 
because digital is, you know, we, we have, we have the sky, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in, in a, in a weird way, it, the, the, the sky's limit is kind of the, is, is kind of a massive understatement when it comes to digital technology in, in, in our fields. It's, it's something where it's, you know, you can do so much with this technology, even, you know, the laptop I'm using at this present moment to record this conversation is 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And yet we're still recording high fidelity, uh, mm-hmm. lossless waveforms in, in files that can be edited by incredibly pro software. And we're 3000 miles away from each but, other. But lossless on the original not on the actual sound coming out of our voice, right? Right. Lossless on the actual original digital copy, so to speak. Right. Right. But at, <laughs> at the same time, I'm hearing a sampled version of you coming yeah. back out through me. Sure, um, sure. So, so there is a, th- there's a give and a take, right? Yeah, because, yeah. you know, I will always want to hear whatever first pressing was because even nowadays, a lot of, the uh cutters the 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 vinyl lacquer cutters what mm-hmm. what the master would be cut to if you're doing a vinyl master yeah oftentimes many of those will be computer controlled these days and there are and and there are a lot of ancient machines that can cut the vinyl still but a lot of them do have some kind of computerized thing in the process. So mm-hmm. no matter what, modern day, a lot of vinyl will have some kind of digital sampling in it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the fact that you bring this up and we're talking about this, again, a huge parallel between visual effects and, and music because you're talking about sampling rates and you're thinking at some point, will the human ear discern any difference do we need to go so far? And just like what we were talking about before we hit record, those Apple phones that say, ooh, everybody, it's 8K cinema quality, it's 20K, it's a million K. At some point, your eye won't see the difference. So more K just really just means more headaches or more sampling rate does not make it better listening experience for a human being, right? Right. Well, I mean... We and we already started experiencing that 15, 20 years ago. If you remember when when everybody went to, you know, uh, the the first movie shot at sixty frames a second, where right and, and people and there was, didn't like it, and people, people didn't like it because right. the you know your head when when you shake your head, yeah, right, you don't see everything. Right, motion the, blur is a helpful thing. <laughs> right. So at the point where you have gotten rid of it to the point where you are viewing something that is not humanly possible. Right. It looks unnatural. And it's like, again, it, we can. To the point where we? it hurts you. I mean, some people yeah. even get seizures from that. Stuff. Yeah. Oh, they got sick. People got sick doing it. And, right. you know, this was Peter Jackson's one of his big experiments. And, you know, and, and, and it's a funny he's not doing it anymore. You know, so after a while, the tech can supersede the art, but the art is still king, right? So, you know, after a while, you, you can say, yeah, we can, but let's not do that, you know, kind of a thing. 
uh, which kind of goes a full circle to all the stuff with dead hologram tour. We can, but should we, you know, or, you know, we can clean up pet sounds so we can hear even just the little coughs and we can hear, you know, the car outside that was being pulled up or whatever it was, you know. Um, but if Brian didn't hear that, you know, or Brian didn't want that in there, does it need to be augmented in there when I thought, you know, Brian Wilson or something like that? So, right. Or, or do we need to remaster or remix come together so much that we can hear Lennon scream, Oh fucking hell. I fucked up. <laughs> right. Uh, so loud that it, it goes over the, you know, like, yeah, and and I personally I want to hear him yell that, but I don't want to hear him yell that in the song that he said. This is what I want to give to the public. Listen to this, right, you know? right, right. And and then and then there's you know, you know we we've we've been talking about this for for uh, forever and a day now on 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 the audio side. There, there's also the same thing with with the video side. I mean, there there's there's so much stuff in film and VFX that's the exact same way. It's a, a mm-hmm. you know, Jesus, the technology is really great now. Why do we need it? Right. Uh, I, I can think of, a, a you know, not, nothing that I can name off the top of my head, but there are plenty of examples where, you know, you think about it. There are a lot of movies that I, I certainly would have preferred if they had shot it at 24 frames per sec, mm-hmm. you know, or if they had been animated at 24 frames a second because it sure. looks better and, and is not going to hurt you. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, that frame rate, that 24 FPS, you know, for a hundred, hundred plus years, we've grown accustomed to the cinematic look. We like motion blur and motion blur helps the eye follow movement, you know, and just cause you can strip all that out and make it so insanely real that it looks like it's right in front of you. It's a hologram in front of your living room or the movie theater doesn't make a better enjoyable experience for a, for a, a moviegoer. And anything you're doing to kind of degrade or negate you being pulled out of that story is bad, right? You're there for the story. And everything is kind of, you know, subservient to, here, I want to tell you a story or a song. It says, hey, I want to tell you, I want to hear, listen, listen to this song. You hear traffic outside because the it's so super clean. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't help the song just because we can do it, you know? So uh, I, I think you're right with all of that. No, there, there's, there's a number of things that you could think about. I mean, one of, one of the, an episode that got, that's actually part three of it is going to release tomorrow as, as we record this. Um, uh, somebody I spoke to for the podcast is a fellow uh, presenter on, on, on this network Pantheon podcasts. Uh, his name's Jerry Bryant, and he's been in uh, he's been in radio and television for fifty years. And up until a couple of years ago, he was still a linear video editor, mm-hmm. right? Edited mm-hmm. on on uh, on camera and edited, you know, direct off the camera on a linear linear editor. Yeah, and you know, he had With a some... splicer and tape and the whole bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He he had a he had a lot of experience, and only recently did he start uh, going into DaVinci Resolve and doing the nonlinear editor thing. Sure, um, and he could do almost anything he wanted to. Um, he was he was very good at it, very adept. And one of the things that he talked about was a lot of these. Th- there were a number of companies, one in particular whose name I'm forgetting, uh, 
who reached out to him and sent him uh, a VFX thing. And it was one of the first computer VFX things mm-hmm. um, that that you could that was publicly available. Mm-hmm. And it was somewhere in the 90s, as as far as he had told me. And this is this was the thing that he used, you know, and it was it was something of a, you know, it, it was a new technology and it did a lot of help. But there there's there there's some merit to a lot of the older technology. But at the same time, you know, it it's weird because. From from the audio person perspective i want to say you know we've come a long way technologically and we all agree that it's far easier and we like the process better now than Mm -hmm. any of us did 40 years ago Mm -hmm. but there is some merit to the belief that 40 years ago in a lot of ways sounded better because it felt better to our ears because it was more comfortable to listen to actual waveforms rather than high sample rates. Yeah, and you know that romantic notion, I think, we may kind of be detached from because someone may say, you know, the, the analog equipment at Abbey Road sounded so much better. But if you actually go back there and maybe talk to someone that said, you know, or whoever they are, they're like, we, we only had a four-track. I would have loved to had what you guys have right now. You know, that kind of a thing. So, you know, that you're right. That kind of notion is... is um. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of a purist, and I like oh, I want to hear as it sounded then. But again, that four track, maybe they hated it. You know, they almost lost Bohemian Rhapsody because they overdubbed so much, right? Yeah. What other things have we lost because the technology wasn't there? But I'm not necessarily talking about 1967. Mm-hmm. I am uh, when I say 40 years ago, we do have to remember. 1981 is now 40 years ago. <laughs> That's um, true. It's true. As, as strange as it is to even the 20 year old in this conversation, um, <laughs> 1981 was 40 years ago. Now, the golden age, realistically, the golden age of recording, at least technologically wise, for a lot of us would be call it 1977 mm-hmm. to about 1986, mm-hmm. that nine, 10 year period, because you had. The advent of good time code, mm-hmm. two-inch machines. Uh, there was a guy named John Stevens who created the two-inch 40-track machine. So you mm-hmm. did have, uh, and there were a few others, so you did have uh, large track counts. Yeah. Um, and even, Huge mixers, and, yeah. And, and even with without that, you still had time code enough that you could put four uh, two-inch machines together and not feel bad about it. So you could have high track count that way uh you had giant consoles uh as you had just said neve studer was building consoles i know they're renowned for the tape machines of the day but you know they were making desks uh mci was still making desks uh quad eight had desks uh ssl was and these were available right i mean like tom tom stoltz did it did boston first album in his basement right exactly yeah Exactly. And that's that's the thing that everybody forgets is like it. A lot of people did have this stuff ready, readily yeah. available. Um, it, it was a thing um, and it was expensive. But, you know, when you're an engineer like Tom Scholz was, uh, 
working you can build for it yourself if you and you know you're saving a lot of uh studio time if it's in your basement right yeah. So I, I know from like experience. The, that, that's the holy grail for a lot of new bands, right? It's like, oh, we we're only allowed to go in there at four a.m. because you know we're not, we don't have a name, but we need all that equipment, right? And is that still a thing, or can people kind of do it on their MacBook now? Kind of a thing. Nobody goes into studios anymore. Yeah, that's why all of them are closed. Right. That there you go. So I mean, that's um that's a revolutionary, really, for the music industry, isn't it? I mean, it's terrible for the pro guys, but it's yep. great for us. Yeah. yeah. As, as musicians, yes. As engineers, we, we're hating it. You know, I mean. But the, the, but the, the impetus, the, the kind of the struggle <laughs> of the, um, God bless you. You know, you have to have the expertise yourself now to, to do it. If you're not going to go and, and be in a studio with, with a bunch of engineers that the, the, you know, the label is sending down to help you get just the right sound and all that kind of a thing, right? Is the onus on the musician now to be more of an engineer. Right. And it, and it, you know, there, I I know plenty of people. uh, One in particular I can think of was uh, Bruce Springsteen's longtime engineer. Um, And he was on the show and something that he had said was if you're a musician, don't be an audio engineer. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, and if you are a musician, but you don't think you're going to make it, and so you take up a job at, uh, at, at insert recording studio here and yeah. start cleaning toilets and start being a gopher and then become an assistant engineer, don't think you're going to go from assistant engineer to then lead engineer. And as an engineer, then you're going to quit engineering and you're going to become a go. Rock and roll right um it 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 if it has happened it i don't know a story where it did mm-hmm. um you know uh so 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 there there is merit to what he said but what he said is advice that's probably antiquated now a, a little bit yeah. yeah i mean because there, you have to know now Right. A little well, bit. You have to know. And, and and even now, you know, even people who don't want to become engineers who go into recording studios, they don't go to East West. Mm-hmm. They don't really go to Sunset Sound. They yeah. they don't go to Capitol. Uh, you know, I mean, they do, but they don't, you know, not 95 percent of the time they're going to go to some schmuck barely bigger than me who does not have a giant, you know, large format console who does not, you know, have that kind of gear who probably spent like I did 40, $50,000, maybe more, maybe a hundred thousand dollars on equipment and a computer and plugins and things like that. And they bought or rented a room. It's relatively small. They have a control room. Uh, ah, but that's one the live problem, room and right? one and the, is the room right like like you just can't go find a sun studio right is that a detriment to the music now that the rooms that just had amazing sound like perhaps like sun studio you know or something they're not using those anymore is no that, is that a problem i mean it's a problem for those rooms but it's not it, it's it's <laughs> not really a problem for 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 these engineers that are building the musicians don't care. The musicians don't want like 
you know, like Bonham's putting putting the kick drum in the hallway, or, or you know, or you know, Ringo putting the kick drum in in the hallway of EMI or something. They the musicians aren't looking for those colorful rooms, or or when you two went to Berlin for Octong Baby, you know, they're like, my God, I just can't get a sound like I can out of this cathedral. If you're going somewhere where someone literally just pops open a MacBook and you're in a in a, I don't know where you are, is that a detriment to the music industry nowadays? Do you feel? Like I said, it's a detriment to those rooms. I mean, Billie Eilish recorded a a, a record that got her, yeah, what, six Grammys in her living and, room, right? in, in in her brother's bedroom, right, right. And Boston, we just talked about Tom in his basement, right. And and I I Maybe just those rooms it, are overrated. And look, I'm sitting in my garage talking to you right now. Yeah, I recorded a record for a Grammy nominee. I'm about to produce an EP for another two Grammy nominees. Uh, One of those two Grammy nominees is coming in here on Wednesday to listen to beats and work on arrangements. Yeah. You know, rooms don't matter anymore. Ah, okay. The, the, the thing, I mean, they do, but you you also capture that. Can you reproduce that digitally? Is that the same to you guys to say, put it this kind of warm echo on everything and it's going to sound just like XYZ or that that incredible space that's in London somewhere. This has been an interesting conversation indeed and the fun does not stop here. Tune in next time. We're going to have part two with Mr. Dante Rinaldi. This is Music from Blue Girl, and today I just want to give you all a brief update on The World, which is the song I am doing with Gordon Nappy G. Clay, MC Solati, and Will Magid. We just finished the keeper vocals for The Bridge, which were sung by MC Solati. We did some really cool harmonies, as well as just a really stunning lead with a lot of power and a lot, a lot of character and beautiful tone. So I'm going to take it from the bridge all the way to the out. I think you'll dig the little mix tricks I've been doing in the out with some stereo panning of the chant vocals that we did. So without further ado, here is the world, and we're taking it from the bridge. Enjoy. That's the show, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. Special major big thank you to Mr. Dante Rinaldi for being on the show today. I think we brought some really excellent talking points to both sides of this conversation, both from the perspective of visual effects and the perspective of an audio engineer and music producer. For all of you listening and want to keep this conversation rolling, tune in next time. 
we're going to have part two of this conversation with myself and Dante Rinaldi. Of course, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you. But for now, this is Daniel the D3 Cohen signing off from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios right here in San Francisco. We're ready to record. <laughs>